You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323, by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is the last lecture in this cycle, Lecture 18, given on January 18, 1921. If we recall what I said yesterday about the antithetical nature of Earth and Sun, We'll come to see that in answering such questions, it's all important to follow the empirical facts in a certain way. It's absolutely impossible to arrive at theories about the phenomena we're viewing without accepting right from the outset that we might have to interpret what we've seen in radically different ways. The phenomena that present themselves to us when looking at the so-called body of the sun will find their true interpretation only if we start from premises such as those I've been elaborating for you. We have to put the question something like this. On earth there are many phenomena that work outward from a given center toward the wide circumference, out into cosmic space, and we interpret them accordingly. So then how should we interpret similar phenomena, or rather phenomena that seem superficially similar, when we're looking, with or without the help of optical instruments, toward the sun. The empirically observed phenomena will reveal themselves in their true light only if we ground them in the notion that while on the surface of the earth an eruption or the like will naturally be interpreted as tending upward and outward, see figure 1a, a process on the sun a sunspot, for example, needs to be interpreted rather as tending from outside inward. See figure 1b. Continuing this line of thought, just as we have to imagine that if we went through and beneath the surface of the earth, we would get into dense matter, in the same way, we have to imagine that if we moved from outside the sun toward the sun's interior, we would come into an ever more attenuated state of matter. So that we truly can say, look at the earth and the whole way that the earth is situated within the universe. It manifests as so much ponderable matter in the universe, not so the sun. Here we'll arrive at the truth only if we think that as we go from the circumference toward the interior, we get ever more remote from ponderable matter, and enter ever more and more into the imponderable. We have precisely the opposite behavior as we draw near the center. The sun is to be imagined as a hollowing out, shall we say, of cosmic matter, a hollow space, a hollow sphere enveloped by matter, in contrast to the earth, where we have denser matter enveloped by more attenuated matter. As for the earth, we think of air around it. Air is outside and denser matter inside. For the sun, it's the other way around. 
As we go inward, we go from relatively denser matter into more attenuated matter, and finally into the negation of matter. Whoever considers the phenomena in this realm with a truly open mind and puts them all together will be obliged to conclude that this is so. The sun isn't simply a more attenuated heavenly body of a materiality less dense than earthly matter. But if we call the earth's materiality positive, then in the sun, in the sun's interior, we'll have negative matter. We do justice to the phenomena only if we think of the interior of the sun as containing negative matter. Now, as compared with positive matter, negative matter is suctional. Positive matter exerts pressure. Negative matter exerts suction. And if you now conceive the sun as a gathering of suctional force, you need no further explanation of gravitation. This is the explanation. Now imagine it again as I explained it yesterday. The movement of earth and sun is simply one in which the earth follows the sun along the same path, moving in the same direction. Then you'll arrive at the cosmic relationship between sun and earth. The sun as a gathering of suctional forces goes on before, and by means of this suctional force, the earth is pulled along behind, moving through cosmic space along the same path and in the same direction in which the sun thrusts itself forward. In this way you'll arrive at insight into something you wouldn't be able to follow inwardly with mere concepts. There's no other way to arrive at an idea that can hold the phenomena together. You have to build your foundation upon ideas such as these. You have to imagine that in the realm of matter there's a positive and a negative intensity. Matter itself, that is earthly matter, is positive. It's of positive intensity. Solar matter, on the other hand, is negative, of negative intensity. And therefore, it's not only empty in relation to matter-filled space, but even, quote, less than empty, close quote. It's a hollowing out of space itself. Perhaps it is difficult to formulate such a concept. Yet if you're accustomed to entertaining mathematical ideas, why not think of a certain degree of the fullness of space as a corresponding magnitude, say, plus A. Empty space would then be zero, and a space less than empty would be conceivable as minus A. In this way, you'll be able to conceive a truly mathematical relation, or at least a relation that's analogous to mathematical relationships, between the different intensities of matter, as in this instance between terrestrial and solar matter. Let me add something parenthetically here. No matter how you think of the relation of positive and negative real numbers to imaginary numbers, I won't go into this question now, it must be possible to arrive at some interpretation of the so-called imaginary numbers, since they also emerge as the solutions of equations and the like. If, in the way we've been saying, you recognize a positive and a negative intensity, you may well conceive that there's also an imaginary intensity, in which case you would get, and here's a little picture of plus a times the square root of minus 1, below that is negative a, 0, positive a, below that is 
negative a square root negative 1. And then, for example, it would have become possible for you to add to positive and negative matter the kind of matter, or if you will, the kind of spirituality, that anthroposophy describes as the astral. Thus you would find a mathematical way of approaching the astral as well. But as I said before, this only in parenthesis. Once again, consider the connection between what I've been saying and our human nature itself. You can conclude without any doubt that the human physical body is related to ponderable earthly matter. And since it's as waking beings, upright in our physical bodies, that we're related to earthly matter, we can compare humanity's relation to earthly matter with the upright orientation of the plant, following what was said in previous lectures. However, yesterday we saw that we need to think of the plant as having an orientation antithetical to that of human beings. While the natural plant has to be conceived as growing upward from below, the plant we need to imagine, within the human constitution, grows from above downward. See figure 2. So what is it that grows from above downward? Certainly nothing visible. It has to be something supersensible. We related this to the sun. If, therefore, in relating the forces of vegetal growth to the path of the sun and earth, we think of them as tending from the earth toward the sun, then we must think of what grows in the reverse direction toward human beings as growing within our etheric body. This force of suction, therefore, proceeding from the sun, works also in our human nature, permeating our etheric body from above downward. Upon the human being, the human body in this instance, two antithetical entities are at work, sun entity, earth entity. We have to be able to prove in detail that these things are there, and we can indeed, once we are able to interpret them in the right way, that which is at work within human nature, from above downward, can reveal itself in manifold ways. For if we have a force exerting itself, say in the direction A minus B, we can trace it not only in this direction, but also imaginatively. If this C figure 3 is its intensity, all we need to do is imagine it analyzed into two components. Thus we can construct everywhere components of the forces that lie in the same direction as the path of the earth and the sun. If I press here with my finger, there will arise over this surface the force or pressure whereby the ponderable matter presses against me. The counter-pressure will then correspond to the force of the sun that is working through me, through my etheric body, that is to say. If you think of a surface here pressing against a human being or against which she is pressing, then you have conceived the effect of ponderable force, opposed by the effect of imponderable force. What's giving you a sensation of pressure here is nothing other than the reciprocal effects of the ponderable pressure working from without inward and of the imponderable pressure working from within outward. See figure 4. If we survey all these things inwardly with the clear eye of the soul, 
E-Y-E, then we can begin to sense the opposition of sun and earth, into which we have been placed as human beings, in every act of sensory perception. Everything about our human nature can be traced in such a way as to perceive the workings of the cosmos within us. Cosmic forces influence human beings at every hand. It's tremendously important for us to overcome the way of looking at things that isolates human beings and that is always holding fast to things that actually have no connection with the larger context within which they're situated. Let me repeat the analogy I've used before in these lectures. If we situate human beings within the world in such a way as to study the head, limbs, etc., separately, that's tantamount to studying the needle of a magnet, pointing as it does always in the same direction and seeking the cause not in the magnetic poles of the earth, but rather inside the needle itself. In order to understand any fact or object, we have to enter into the totality from which alone it can be understood. What matters is, in every case, to look for the corresponding totality. And it is just this kind of holistic thinking that remains utterly foreign to the prevailing way of looking at things. Before attempting to decide an issue, look first for the totality upon which it all depends. Pick up a salt crystal. You can regard it as a totality just as it is. Even this is only relatively true but at least relatively, you can regard it that way. In some sense, it's a self-contained entity, but this isn't true of a rose. If you pick one and set it in front of you in the same way, the rose isn't a self-contained entity at all. It can't stand before you in the same way that a salt crystal can. The crystal, it's true, must also have been formed in a surrounding medium, and yet it's a totality. The rose can be looked upon as a totality only when seen in connection with the shrub on which it grew. Only there does it exhibit the kind of totality that the salt cube has on its own. So, there's no way we're justified in viewing a rose as a self-contained reality. And so it is that if we contemplate the full extent of our human nature, we can't stop short at the limits of our skin. Rather, we have to regard human nature in connection with the entire universe that's visible to us, for it's only within this context that it can be understood. So that has to be our method, and if we persevere in it, we become able to see a deeper meaning in the phenomena that present themselves to us and can indeed be mastered by our cognition. In the course of these lectures, We've recalled that when we compare the periods of revolution of the planets, incommensurable magnitudes emerge. For, if they were commensurable, the planetary orbits would gradually enter into a nexus of relations such that the entire planetary system would ossify. And our planetary system does indeed contain this tendency to become rigid and dead. We can express what confronts us in the planetary system by means of certain curves and mathematical formula. Yet, as we saw, these curves and formula are never in full agreement with reality. Hence, we have to admit that if we try to capture the phenomena of the heavens in succinct formula or geometrical figures, the phenomena elude us. Time and again they elude us. So, that's how it is. 
Look outward on the one hand and behold the given picture of the celestial phenomena. Look on the other hand at what we're able to make of it by making calculations. We never do contrive a formula that coincides entirely with the phenomena. We can devise a drawing, such as I was sketching yesterday, the system of lemniscates. That's something we can do. However, even this system can be understood properly only if we admit the following. Suppose I managed to draw this lemniscate system in a precise and finished form. Even so, it would at most be true for the present time, even a time comparatively near our own, the time I indicated when speaking of the coming Ice Age, would require me to modify this system substantially. I would have to modify the constants of the curves by taking them as variable, so that the constants themselves become rather complicated functions. Thus I can't ever draw simple curves, but rather only complicated lines. Even when drawing these lines here, I would actually have to say, all right then, I draw a path for some celestial body. As we saw yesterday, it'll always be a lemniscatory path. Fine, but after a period of time has elapsed, I'll have to declare it invalid. I'll have to make the lemniscate a little broader. And then again after a time, I'll have to draw a lemniscate like this, see figure 5, and so on. What this means is that if I wanted to begin following along the paths of the heavenly bodies, I would really have to go out into the universe and trace them ever anew, varying them all the time. There is no constant path that I can draw. Whatever path I might work out, in doing so I should constantly remember that I really ought to be changing it all the time, since every lapse of time involves a change of path. In order to apprehend the heavenly bodies and their paths of movement in any adequate way, I can't draw finished lines at all. Finished lines, if I do draw them, will only be approximations, and I'll have to introduce corrections. Whatever finished lines I may devise, what's real in the heavens will later elude me. No matter what mathematical curve I may devise, once it's fixed and finished, the reality will certainly escape me. My finished curve won't capture it. But in the very act of saying this, I'm giving voice to a reality. A planetary system tends in both directions, on one hand toward rigidity and on the other toward mobile lemniscating. In the solar system, we find this contrast between the tendency to become rigid and the tendency to be ever variable, ever stepping outside its established form. If we follow up this opposition now, not in the way of speculation, but rather contemplatively, we'll be led to recognize that what we call a comet, a cometary body, isn't a body at all in the same sense that a planet is. You can verify for yourselves what I'm giving here in the way of guidelines. All you need to do is observe the empirical data. Observe them with the greatest possible precision, but don't cling to the theories with which so many scientists want to fetter them, theories that lie like shackles upon the facts. Then you will convince yourselves that what I'm about to say is verifiable. 
It'll be verified increasingly the more the given facts are synthesized. In studying the nature of comets, we get into difficulties if we conceive of comets in the same way that we're accustomed to think of planetary bodies. Recall the methodological point I made earlier in these lectures. Planetary bodies can be represented as though they were self-contained bodies moving on in space without doing too much violence to the facts, but not a cometary body. Again and again you'll find yourself contradicting with phenomena if you take planetary bodies as your model. You'll never understand comets, the way they move or seem to move through cosmic space, if you view them in the same way you're accustomed to view planetary bodies. See what becomes of it, on the other hand, if you look at the phenomena in the way I'm about to describe. Take all the empirical facts that are available and try to bring them into line with the following thought. Imagine that in this direction, see figure 6, toward the sun, one might say, the comet comes into being at every moment. It thrusts its nucleus, or what appears to be its nucleus, forward. Behind, it melts away again. And that's how it thrusts itself forward, forever coming into being on the one hand, passing away again upon the other. It's not a body in the same sense that a planet is, not at all. It's something that's perpetually coming into being and passing away again, adding new material in front and losing the old at its tail. It pushes forward like a mere effulgence, a mere phenomenon of light. But please, I'm not saying that's all it is. And now, remember what we were saying a few days ago. We don't just have the moon up there and the earth down here, see figure 7. Rather, every planet has a certain sphere, and what we see is only a point at the periphery of that sphere. Fundamentally, the moon is the sphere that's bounded by the lunar orbit. Together with the earth, we reside within the lunar sphere. Likewise, there is a certain sense in which we dwell within the solar sphere and within the spheres of all the planets. The planets are not merely what's out there moving in lemnus gates, what's at yonder point at any given moment. The visible point is only a part that's been distinguished in a particular way. As I was saying, it's like the areas of germination in the germinal vesicle of the human embryo. If you're mindful of this, then you'll say to yourselves, now I'm contemplating the earth on the one hand and the sun on the other. In fact, two spheres are interpenetrating, thrusting into each other. Spheres that express their origins in two kinds of matter that are antithetical in their orientation. The one comes from the center of the sun, toward which negative matter is tending. The other from the center of the earth, from which positive matter is emanating. Positive and negative materialities are interpenetrating here. Naturally, the interpenetration will not be homogeneous everywhere. Not even clouds that move through one another would interpenetrate homogeneously. Rather, they're thoroughly inhomogeneous. Imagine how, in this mutual penetration, the different densities will impinge on each other. 
in this penetration of the one substantiality by the other, you then have the conditions required in order for phenomena like comets to arise. Comets are ever nascent phenomena, perpetually coming into being and then perpetually passing away again. And if we draw our ideal picture of a planetary system, say the Copernican picture, with the Sun here and Uranus and Saturn here, we shouldn't imagine that the comet is arriving there from some great distance and then making its departure into remote space again, see figure 8. Out there, outside the system, we don't need to imagine it existing at all. Instead, it comes into being then at the perihelion. It changes its gestalt. What had been in a process of continual becoming melts away again and is no more. The comet comes into being and passes away. That's its very nature. Hence it can sometimes describe apparent orbits that aren't closed at all, parabolic or hyperbolic paths. Because we're not dealing with something that's moving around and would need to be in a closed circuit. Rather, something comes into being and is entirely able to do that along a parabolic trajectory and then vanish and be no more. We have to look upon comets as fleeting things. In relation to sun and earth, they're a balancing of ponderable and imponderable matter, a meeting of the two kinds of matter, which don't immediately balance out as when light expands in air. For in the latter instance, too, there's a meeting of the ponderable and the imponderable. There, however, they spread continuously, homogeneously, as it were. They don't collide. In the case of comets, we see a collision between two kinds of matter, because they don't adapt to each other. Take, for example, air, with light of a certain intensity passing through it. The light spreads homogeneously. But if the light doesn't adapt itself to expansion of the air quickly enough, a kind of inner friction will ensue between the ponderable and imponderable matter. Only, I ask you please not to understand this in a mechanical sense, but rather as an inner process, as a mutual friction between ponderable and imponderable matter, see figure 9. Follow the comet in its movement, and you'll see there a mutual friction of ponderable and imponderable matter that moves on through space. At every moment it comes into being and passes away again. What I have tried to give you in these studies, my dear friends, was meant above all to bear upon scientific method. Although time constraints have forced me to deal with some of these things in bare outline, scarcely more than hinting at them, yet if you follow up the thoughts and indications in these lectures, you'll see the main point I have been trying to make. It's that the whole methodology underlying science, as it's currently practiced, needs to be transformed. It would be of great significance if these lectures could stimulate such a transformation. As I've said, all I can do is give general directions, as it were. And yet again and again, where we might, may seem to have been working only with mathematical curves and the like, you'll find suggestions for empirical research and experimentation. On all sides, both generally and in detail, you can try to verify what's been presented here in a guise that seems to be only mathematical and geometrical. 
You could take one of those blue or red toy balloons and examine the effect when you inflict a trauma on it from outside inward, where the indentation will, of course, follow certain laws. Then look to see what form is generated by the same type of phenomenon when you establish another experimental protocol in which you allow the forces to exert themselves from within outward, radially. Whether, I say, you're examining only this crude phenomenon of stress and deformation, or whether you follow the lines along which the heating effect will spread when you heat certain substances from within outward in one case, from the periphery inward in another, or again, whether you try your hand at optical, magnetic, or other phenomena. In every instance, you'll find that what I've been saying here about the polarity between sun and earth, to mention only this example, can be pursued experimentally. Above all, if such experiments are really carried out, you'll begin to penetrate the realities in a way that's radically new. For you'll meet with certain real relationships that never have been encountered previously. From the realms of heat and light and so on, you'll be able to derive effects that haven't been derived up to now, because the phenomena haven't yet been approached in such a way that allows them to reveal themselves fully. These are the kinds of things I had hoped to stimulate, perhaps in future lectures, to be given soon or after a while, will be able to take up actual experiments. It'll depend on how our physical and other laboratories prosper, whether or not you've succeeded in developing experimental protocols that are of the future. Let's forego trying to equip our new laboratories with the most costly and perfect apparatus from the scientific instrument makers and then experimenting in the same way that other people do. Really splendid work has already been done everywhere along these lines. What we need to do, as I said before, is devise new experimental protocols. Thus, ideally, we should begin not with a fully equipped physics laboratory, but as far as possible with an empty room. Let's enter those rooms not with the usual instruments all ready-made, but rather with the thoughts of a new physics growing in our minds and souls. The emptier our laboratories and the fuller our own heads, the better experimenters will gradually become over time, my dear friends. That's what matters most in this context. That's the way we have to take up the tasks of our time. Just think of all the shackles that are placed on you by the various experimental sciences in the normal course of study nowadays. You had no opportunity to see or to set out the phenomena in any other form than was provided for by the accustomed apparatus. With these instruments, how could you expect to study the spectrum in Goethe's sense? You can't possibly do it. Today's instruments can yield only what's already contained in the physics textbooks. You can't begin to understand why we reject the artificial insertion of, in quotes, light rays in the interpretation of the phenomena of light, where in fact there aren't any rays at all. We think of a vessel filled with water with a coin on the bottom, and this coin appears to be somewhere different. 
and then in the blink of an eye we're already drawing our diagram with its angle of incidence and all that other stuff. See figure 10. We pursue the whole matter using such lines, whereas we shouldn't be pursuing such an isolated thing at all. Reality never confronts us with such isolated things. If this is the bottom of the vessel, figure 11, and a coin is lying there, we start to see how the coin should be treated only when we think as follows. Imagine on the bottom of the vessel, not an isolated coin, but a circle, for example made of paper, see figure 12. The phenomenon is that when seen through a surface of water, the paper circle appears lifted and enlarged. That's the pure phenomenon which you can draw. So if at the bottom of the vessel you have not the whole circle but only a little bit of it, you have no right to treat it differently. In effect, the coin is like a little fragment of the paper circle. You shouldn't introduce all kinds of lines into the picture. Rather, you should treat it as a portion of the circle that's there, not because it's differentially visible, but entirely because it's a part of the bottom, because of the simple fact that a point is visible down below. I'm theoretically justified in treating this visible point as signifying not a point, but rather part of a circle. See figure 13. It's just like the needle of a compass. I can't capture its real nature by treating it as though a center were here, and here there were a north pole and a south pole. Rather, I need to realize that purely and simply by virtue of this arrangement, the whole of it is one unlimited line, with forces working peripherally on the one hand and centrically on the other. See figure 14. In electrical phenomena, the same reality expresses itself when we get the cathode on the one side and the anode on the other. On the one hand, we can only explain a luminous phenomenon by regarding it as a portion of a sphere, the radius of which is given by the direction in which the electricity is working, whereas the other pole is given as a tiny portion of the radius itself. It's not justifiable to speak of a simple polarity of poles. We should speak in an entirely different way, namely wherever anode and cathode make their appearance. This will belong to an entire system, simply by virtue of structure of the whole. Only by speaking in this way can we arrive at a correct understanding of the phenomena. So, my dear friends, I've been reading through the written questions, but I believe that if those concerned will reflect a little, they'll find the necessary elements of an answer to their questions in what I've set forth. Really, we just need to try moving forward one step at a time. There's only one question I would like to take up briefly. The question is as follows, quote, in representing a science of this kind to the outer world, the question may easily arise, to what extent the higher powers of cognition, imagination, inspiration, and intuition are needed for the discovery of these relations between phenomena? What will be the answer to this question? Close quote. Well, my dear friends, what if it were the case that imagination inspiration and intuition are needed for the discovery of certain things. How then are we to do without imagination, inspiration and intuition? 
if the fact is that ordinary, in quotes, objective intellectual cognition won't reveal the truth and the reality. What else can you do except proceed to higher modes of knowledge, imagination, inspiration, and intuition? There's still this possibility. If it's really so that there's a great reluctance to cultivate higher modes of knowledge, there's the possibility of simply taking the results of such research and testing them against what's found in the field of external empirical fact. You'll always find them verified. Of that you may be sure. Yet in our time these things are not as remote as is commonly supposed. If only the path were really taken, from the ordinary analytical treatment of mathematics to the projective treatment, to a projective form of mathematics and beyond it, if people would cultivate and pay more heed to the idea from which I took my start some days ago, speaking of curves that require us to go right out of space, people wouldn't find it so very difficult to press forward to imagination. Indeed, it's simply a question of inner courage, courage of soul. Today you need this inner courage of the soul to do scientific research. And so I need to assert, because it's true, to the ordinary forms of observation and reflection, the full reality will not reveal itself. But if we don't shrink from developing the forces latent within the human soul, depths of reality which would otherwise remain concealed will be ever more unveiled. That is what I'd like to say to you in conclusion. For the rest, let me express the wish that all these things which I wanted to impart only by way of stimulus and suggestion and in the barest outline might inspire you to do experimental research because that's what we need. We need empirical verification of these things which we need to begin taking up in the way we've been doing here. Sooner or later, we have to get beyond the old foundations of judgment which have led for so long to situations like the following. I repeat, we need to get beyond them. I was speaking to a professor of physics about Goethe's theory of color. The man has even published an edition of it with his own commentary. After we'd been discussing Goethe's theory of color for some time, the man declared himself to be a strict Newtonian. He said, in fact, it's impossible for anyone to gain a clear conception of Goethe's theory of color. No physicist can form a clear idea of what it means. You see, his education as a physicist had brought him to this point. He couldn't gain any real notion of Goethe's theory of color. I, for my part, could understand that. If they're candid, modern physicists will have to admit they can't. First, they have to transcend the conventional foundations of present-day physical thinking. They have to be able to get away from these old foundations somehow. If they succeed in this, then they'll find the way, for it can be found. From the actual phenomena to the interpretation that's contained in Goethe's theory of color. And that can also provide an important starting point for other physical research, extending even to astronomy. Consider with an open mind the warmth region of the spectrum and the chemical region of the spectrum, how they behave very differently in response to a number of reagents. 
Even in the spectrum, you'll detect the polarity I've been describing, the polar opposition between terrestrial effects and solar effects. In the spectrum itself, we have a picture of the polarity between Earth and Sun, the same polarity that expresses itself within the human constitution as a whole. Every time you touch another body, perceiving it with your sensation of touch, Sun and Earth are at work. So too in the spectrum, Sun and Earth are at work. Taking it as the solar spectrum, you really can't think of it as just arbitrarily inserted into space here or there. You need to be clear that it's always been inserted into the concrete space that lies between Sun and Earth. Indeed, you're ever dealing with space in the abstract where real phenomena are concerned, for the real things are always there and have to be included. If you don't bear this in mind, you'll end up explaining the origin of the celestial system on the good old pattern, a little drop of oil floating in water, bearing a disk of paper with a pin stuck through it as a pivot, which you begin to turn. The drop of oil gets flattened, and little drops detach themselves. A planetary system has arisen. You explain it to your audience. Quote, you see, it's a planetary system, close quote. You compare it with the solar system in the universe outside, the Copernican conception, and it's the very same. Fine, but don't forget, there you were, Mr. Teacher, turning the pin, and therefore, not to be untrue, you should also add the giant demon in the universe outside turning the cosmic axis, because that's the only way the things you've been alleging can arise. You have no right to use this illustration if you don't include the giant demon. The foundations of science are actually flawed today. We need to be more scrupulous and careful. Those were the kind of inner methodological relationships that I wanted to stress in these lectures. Next time we'll speak again from other points of view about certain realms of science. And that is the end of Lecture 18, the last lecture of the 18 lectures of the book Interdisciplinary Astronomy by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Frederick Amrine, Collected Works, Volume 323.